Hey everyone, before we start this episode, I just wanted to remind everybody that we issued a correction last episode. When I misspoke and said percentage of revenue from nuclear, and what I really meant was generating power. Okay, let's start the show. Welcome everybody to the weekly edition of ESG Now, where we explore the natural environment, our society, and a company's governance structure through the lens of the weekly news. I'm your host, Mike DiCibato, and this week, Arna Klug and Bentley Kaplan join me to discuss the ongoing strikes at GM, and then one of our Aussie analysts, Brendan Baker, joins Bentley and me to discuss the Australian rejection of a Korean coal mine, specifically due to environmental concerns. Thanks as always for joining us. Stay tuned. Okay, so a message appeared in the early morning of September 16th on the United Auto Worker Union's webpage that said, Auto workers go on strike after years of tirelessly helping General Motors reach record level profits. And so the strike at USGM plants began with 50,000 employees walking out onto the street. And so now let us walk into the stat card for GM, because at MSCI ESG Research, we rank companies on their exposure to environmental, social, or governance risk factors on a scale from triple C to triple A, and GM is at the triple C range. Aside from the issues it's faced with restructuring, the rub here is that we found GM's labor management program fails to adhere to best practices to manage labor-related risks such as this. Now, GM, like most auto companies, has built up its factory automation and, in part, its electric vehicle fleet. Automation is the obvious labor problem here, but electrification does labor no favors. Electric vehicles require less parts, and less parts mean less people are needed in the factories. So, in general, due to these factors, car makers are definitely going to continue to cut their labor force. So, Arna, you cover GM. It seems like this company is making more cuts than others. Is the strike unique to GM or is and is this company just a bad example of how an auto company should be run or is this a more endemic problem? Well, I mean, auto unions in the U.S. were pretty strong in the past, especially in the boom times of the auto industry, but I mean, um, in the times of the financial crisis, right, so there was a lot of pressure on unions to accept um, um, lower wages and not so good working conditions anymore, but I mean, GM as you mentioned before, did pretty good the last year. So actually now the, the unions say we want to yeah, benefit from the from the past, from the good and the current good situation, right? And actually um the burden they've taken. Um at the same time um yeah the structuring is going on and right. So actually the strikes actually um it's, it's quite interesting because it comes at times when actually at the same time GM is making some good money and made some good money in the past past years. At the same time, there will be more and more changes and pressure on, on the unions and the work, so workforce ahead. So it's a like situation. I guess the unions now see it. It's probably the, one of the last good moments to try to 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 get back right what they um, um, what they contributed in the past. Right, and a, a strike is the last thing workers or the company wants. For workers, it means you lose your source of livelihood. In this case, the strikers are getting $250 a week from, I assume, their union dues instead of normal wages because they're not actually working. And companies cannot operate. And and usually strikers will try to walk out when the company is doing well because they have more bargaining power. They can say things like, look at how profitable we are. 
why are we under this boot of inequality? You said it might be, Arna, the last time for these workers to pressure GM for their rights, and GM is making some good money. So could you kind of expound on that for me? Mm -hmm. Well, actually, um, financially, GM is doing pretty good, right? The last year had been quite successful for the company. And um, actually, so the company is not like in a in a situation of like in how it was like 10 years ago uh, after the economic crisis and so on. So um, after um, like the restructuring and the, and the, um, uh, and the issues uh, fundamentally. So actually, the company is doing pretty good. But I mean, the company see actually not only GM, but also the whole industry, um, they're facing a lot of uh, risks um, on the horizon, right? Like not only coming from like strikes, but really to the fundamental changes to the business model of the industry and um, what we also covered last year already that the company announced plans to restructure its business and to focus more on um, SUVs and um, electric vehicles, less on sedans and also to close several plants in North America and to restructure the business, which basically means to lay off people. So um, it's like a fundamental and structural issue that the industry is facing. Bentley, um, you recently wrote a long-form podcast on unions, which was great. I really enjoyed it. If you haven't listened to it, you definitely should go listen to it now uh, after this episode, of course. You cover companies with unionized workers also. Could we kind of take a step back here, and can you give us an historical context for this strike? Because it's not like it was just a spontaneous scream from GM workers. GM workers. This issue was planned, well-executed, and well covered by the media, media attention being a major weapon on uh, for unions in the modern age. So, I mean, I'll, I'll just start with the, the union piece because that is, I mean, it's super interesting um, because the so the the history of obviously union workers with the U.S. auto industry is, is long and and colorful. Um, but the during the the financial crisis, from what I understand, unions kind of stepped back from aggressive bargaining and took a lot of cuts to keep the company in business. I think with the implicit or maybe explicit understanding that when things got better, then, you know, they would get get their just desserts. So what they set up was like the system where I think it's like a um, sort of a two-tiered um, union system where like younger workers are getting much less than the, than the more senior workers. Um, and I think there was an expectation that when things got up and running again, you know, they would be able to bargain for something better. Um, and of course, they, they're also they're, they're bargaining at a four-year time horizon, which may feel like a really long time in any industry. Um, so I can understand, you know, the company's having mixed results. Okay, so then UAW has said this is a testing ground for other demonstrations at other companies because they represent workers at other companies. For investors that are either pro-unionized workers or those cautious about the risks posed by poor labor conditions and the existence of unions, and your long-form pod, Bentley, was about the future of unions. So could you tie this story into that really quick? Give us a forward-looking comment on unionization in the U.S. The real challenge for unions now, and I think it's a global one, is how do you pivot away from um, an industry like autos and whether the role of the union is then the bridge into the next industry or you know the next skill set that workers are going to be looking for and i think that's the kind of question that unions are going to have to answer if they're going to if they're going to stay relevant i think there'll be support for 
for labor going up. But the question of how that manifests, I think, is, is going to be one that's going to be difficult to answer immediately. Um, and that's without, you know, the regulatory environment, which I think varies, like if you look at the U.S. from state to state as to what kind of support a union can actually get, whether they can organize. Um, and then country to country also, you know, very, very big variations. Um, but I think, you know, you know, increasing inequality, I think, is a great is a great driver for support for a union or, you know, whatever the future of a union will be. All right. All right, lads. It's time. I want your hot take here. I want some spice on how you think this situation is going to play out. Obviously, these are just predictions. We have no seeing stones here at MSCI, uh, so we don't have that kind of dark magic to figure out the future. But give me your omnipotent take on how this might end up for the workers and for GM. Sure. Yeah, it's um, it's an interesting question. I mean, um, GM... Um, actually, they offered offered more money to the people at the same time that you didn't ex- um, ex- accept. Um, so actually, it um, it's interesting to see, right? So the next years could be really crucial for the for the auto industry, not only for GM. So um, I guess the conflict will somehow be solved, but it will also have a lot of costs. It's also expensive for the company uh, those days. And um, um, but I'm not too optimistic and for the overall situation of the auto industry and especially also this uh, restructuring which will which will happen so um yeah it's tough times at the same time you see probably um like a big gap between some um, employees which are highly paid uh, like uh, like the white collar workers and the the need of industry for qualified IT specialists engineers and so on at the same time the um, actually still well paid workers compared to other industries wherever the pressure is growing and growing. So it's, um, yeah, it's a tough situation for the company. Yeah, so I mean, who knows what's going to happen. I think um, the, the, two, the two ingredients for me is um, the fact that you see this, this you know, increasing support for labor movements in, in, an, in a market where almost everyone is employed. So that, you know, that raises a question of, you know, what kind of employment is there and what kind of a life do you have with that employment? And the second thing is, uh, you know, the sort of ambiguous political environment. So it's difficult to know exactly, you know, how, you know, the top country leadership is going to come out on, on this type of strike action. Um, so it may not be GM, but I think it could be a, a company soon where things get a lot uglier than, you know, just the strike. And it may not be GM, it might be Amazon, it might be... Um, Alphabet might be a, a you know different company altogether, but I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. Um, but I think the you know the what I think what will happen is this type of engagement is going to become more more frequent, and I think the companies that come out ahead are going to be the ones that know how to how to you know head them off, how to you know help pivot employees to new lines of work and and to and to sort of lower this uh, to lower the pressure on on these types of situations. For our second story, in Australia, a company called Kepco Bylong Australia wants to build a new coal mine in the Australian state, New South Wales. But the New South Wales Independent Planning Commission has refused to give development consent, citing concerns about long-lasting environmental, agricultural, and heritage impact. In fact, on the commission's press release, they said the project is not in the public interest because... The predicted economic benefits would accrue only to the present generation, but the long-term environmental heritage and agricultural costs would be borne by future generations. Translation, we care more about the planet than we care about profit. 
So this mine was going to extract 120 million tons in 25 years, and it was going to be run by KEPCO, which is actually a subsidiary of Korea Electric Power Corporation. So let's do the quick stack card for Korea Electric Power Corporation. We rank the company at a double B because it's had issues with damaging the health of communities, bribery, and it's had related party transactions. But it is also adding some renewables to its portfolio. Its current carbon-free power generation share is at 29%. So there's that. But this isn't really a story about KEPCO. It's about coal and coal's slow demise. But what makes this story so interesting is Australia is one of the world's top coal exporters. On a tonnage basis, Australia exports 26.9% of the world's coal. That's second only to Indonesia. And according to the International Energy Agency, it is one of the top five coal producers in the world. Yet, we have a situation where an Australian state government has rejected a coal mine, saying that the mine's long-term damage to the environment outweighs its immediate economic benefits. So, Brendan, you're a local. Um, I want you to take me through the story. I know that current mines are not going to shut down, but this whole thing still seems like a major shift in one of the biggest exporters of coal's policy, right? Could you take me through the situation? Yeah. No, no, there's, uh, I don't think there's that discourse going on at all. Um, it's, it's, it's definitely... Um, so, so the Labor government that put their proposal together, um, they had a climate policy kind of last year during the federal election. They had a just transition policy that was looking at, you know, this, this way of actually transitioning jobs from coal to renewable alternative energies or, or whatnot and actually having a plan in place. There is no plan in place um, at the federal level for these, for these transitions. Um, there's just the expectation that we're going to be selling coal as an Australian for the rest of our lives and that there's no risk. And you can see that with companies like Whitehaven Coal who just did their, um, <clears throat> they just released their TCFD related report um, and they were using the scenarios from like the IEA around sustainable development scenarios and, and a bunch of others and they pretty much came to the conclusion that there is no risk to their coal exports because it's the best in the world and everyone's going to want to use that coal for the rest of um, their reserve life. So, you know, that's probably one of the biggest pure play thermal coal miners in Australia, and they're just saying there is no risk. And when you've got a coal player like that saying there is no risk, the federal government saying there is no risk, um, anyone who's operating in that coal region doesn't want to think that there's a risk because there's a risk to their jobs. Um, the big picture is that Australia is not really preparing themselves for any transition around that, despite the fact that everyone else around the world is, is highlighting the fact that there are these risks. Australia doesn't seem to be actually doing that. In the investor conversation, you're getting that. And, you know, people like IGCCC um, released a report that had a big element of that transition, whether or not companies are actually doing anything about that or um, the state government or federal government is doing anything about that is a different question, unfortunately. Right. Actually, before this call, I remember you were saying that the Australian federal government keeps saying that they are lowering emissions. But when the emissions data is released, it's seen that they're actually there's a steady increase in emissions. And it reminds me of this fight that's happening between California and the Trump administration right now about car emissions because New South Wales is a state-run agency and they're trying to cut carbon. And the Australian federal government is steadily increasing its carbon. And like in the U.S., California is trying to cut car emissions and the Trump administration is trying to prevent them from cutting car emissions. And being in the U.S., I cannot help but be painfully aware of it, but it seems like this fight between state officials and the federal government knows no geographical boundaries. Well, the issues of, of having a, a federal government that 
that you know isn't supporting this level of transition, which is a which is a good, you know essentially going to create a, a huge risk for a lot of those companies operating there, um, in that there's no smooth transition away from something, and then there's going to be a huge risk to the societies that those industries are supporting. But when you've got a government that is actively pursuing the non-renewable agenda, um, it's just enhancing that risk. So there was a you know. An example is of the biggest utilities in Australia called AGL, is one of the biggest emitters. They had a, um, a five-year plan to close one of the big thermal coal utilities, and um, and they had a, they've got a net zero plan by 2050. They've got all these targets. They're actually quite progressive in terms of where they want their company to head, um, and they they put out this plan. Probably it was probably last year about five. You know, it's a five-year. Um, you know, this is going to happen in five years. So they've been very public with what they're going to do because they want to make sure that they're transparent. And the federal government has essentially attacked that company and lobbied against that company about the risks that it's going to cause um, for you know energy security and whatnot. Whereas this company has come out there said it's going to make them, it's going to be more efficient, it's going to drop energy prices, and it's actually going to create more jobs. And all that plan is out there, but the but the federal government is actively engaging against it. And you know, you have to ask yourself, well, why? Why is that? Why? Why is that happening? Um, when you've got a, a, gov a federal government, you know, preventing a company from actually transitioning to a, a low carbon utility. This is so. This is the second time an Australian mine has been prevented due to environmental issues. Do you think this is now a viable risk for uh, the Australian coal industry in general, or would that require a different sort of occurrence? You know, and if. Australia keeps selling coal to Japan and Indonesia and Southeast Asia and China, and that is not going down. There's a very small chance that the federal government's going to step in and start preventing a lot of these projects. I just, I just can't see that happening. So, um, that's that's the only the only time I think that's actually really going to come into play is when is when those exports start to fall drastically, and that's really dependent on our export countries, you know, not using our coal. So once that happens, then the whole game is is slightly different. Right, so I wanted to get a global perspective on this. And Bentley, you live in South Africa, and you were telling me before this call that there's this the giant state utility called um, SCOM, SCOM, I think, and that it's heavily reliant on coal, and as such, the South African economy is heavily reliant on coal, and there is local pressure building against dirty fuels, but the federal government remains kind of intransigent. So I was wondering if you could kind of take me through South Africa's relationship with renewables, um... Is the Cape Town government attempting to integrate renewables widely, Bentley? Uh, so, I mean, South Africa, I can speak for South Africa pretty clearly. So the, the there was a very, very deliberate um, political resistance to any kind of uh, renewables program. Um, so because the, the, the power grid is a monopoly um, controlled by the state, you can't actually plug in renewables without state permission. So they, they basically dragged their heels for, for a decade on that, which you know made it impossible for anyone who wanted to develop um, you know, at scale renewable projects, which is really the only way it, it works for investors. Um, you know, and so what that does is just reinforces the status quo and you know, the um, uh, sort of basically the impetus for, for coal and fossil fuel carries on. Um, you know, I mean, so one, one thing also worth considering like a lot of developing countries, which you know, Africa is full of is the, you know, the, the most pressing needs or the ones that have political expediency are not really climate change yet. I think they will be shortly, um, particularly when the social effects of climate change are felt, you know, more readily. 
uh, particularly around sort of food security and, and water, I think, you know, those kinds of things, I think that will exert pressure. Um, but from a, you know, from a cutting emissions by X percent by X year, that's really not... Um, not high priority yet from, you know, at a government level. Um, and in some cases, there would be active resistance. Um, and one other influence is also just, you know, where um, where investments are coming from, you know, from international investors. And you, some of that is directed towards uh, fossil fuel powered stations, basically, um, in, in a variety of African countries. So these battles create uncertainty, which creates volatility, which makes businesses nervous and investors nervous. So I was wondering if either of you could kind of discuss whether or not investors in Australia or South Africa are beginning to try to shift away from fossil fuels in a, in, in a meaningful way and into renewables. In the U.S., there's a lot of cash going into renewables. We've, we've talked about that almost ad nauseum. But I would like to hear how the rest of the world is faring. Um, is there pressure from states and communities to push asset owners away from fossil fuels and into renewables? So, yeah, a lot of, a lot of the asset owners um, down in Australia uh, have to invest in a certain amount of domestic equities, and they have to, um, uh, you know, essentially they're not. A lot of them aren't focused on divestment. Um, a lot of them prefer to stay around um, the engagement side of things. Um, if they start removing, um, you know, fossil fuels from their from their portfolios, if that's the way they go, then they're going to lose a, a huge chunk um, of the Australian of the ASX essentially, um, which which causes them issues from a tracking error perspective and whatnot. But because this is because this is Definitely starting from a, a social, you know, there's this social element that's kind of changing. This regulatory landscape is changing. I, I can imagine this is definitely echoing in their minds about, oh, maybe maybe this shift is happening more quickly than we thought, uh, and we need to figure out how we can factor in maybe you know some of these stranded assets. These, these things might become stranded um, a lot more sooner if there are more regulatory shifts. And typically they haven't. But the fact that we've had three of these um, now in the last, I think it's 12 months or six months. Um, you know, that maybe there's maybe there's going to be significantly more and that shift might come a lot more quickly than they expect. Uh, yeah, I mean, so the, um, you know, the, the, the question of whether there's groundswell from community pressure or NGO pressure that's going to trickle up into government, I mean, the, you know, into investors investing in specific projects um, is, a, is a good one. I think the... Um, you know, I've, I've heard lots of examples of these fantastic community level projects, which is, you know, distributed grid and solar and, um, you know, can help, you know, um, sort of micro lending built into it and, and that kind of thing. But the, the thing, the reality is if for, for most investors, particularly, you know, like the large asset managers and owners, those projects are way too small and too, you know, too um, nuanced and too complex to actually to invest in that scale. So I think the, the the you know the question of where they're going to be able to put their money, and I think there are a lot of investors very keen for renewables or you know transitional um, energy sources. I think it really does come down to whether the government's on side and whether they're going to be making you know making it a smooth a smooth development, because I think renewables is you know there are some there are some kinks to it. It's not a simple you know it's not a simple predictable project that you're going to be investing in. So unless you have that backing, I just don't think it's going to happen. Um, so un unless the you know the 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 groundswell can pressure political and particularly regulatory changes. I don't think the investors are going to have um, you know the, the slice of pie that they're really looking for. I think they are interested. I think they need some way to, to put that money. All right, that's it for the week. I wanted to thank Bentley and Brendan and Arna for joining me to discuss this week's news with an ESG twist. And I want to thank you so much for listening. 
If you like what you heard, please rate and review us. We always appreciate it. See you next week. MSCI ESG Research podcast is provided by MSCI Inc.'s subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research LLC, a registered investment advisor under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to nor received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or a promotion or recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.